Well, I made a huge mistake last week. I thought I could do in one sermon the last servant song. That was a huge mistake. <laughs> kind of like trying to fit all your luggage uh, into one carry-on bag, right? If you're going on a trip. But this passage is so full and uh, there's so much here that I thought it would be good for us to go through it again. And not verse by verse, as much as follow some kind of line of thinking throughout the whole passage. And uh, there's going to be a little overlap, but I think that's okay. <laughs> I think we can handle that. So I want to begin by asking the question, what is God doing in this section? I, I want to keep going back to what God is doing. And really the section you can be divided um, from chapters 1 through 39, and then what we're in now is chapter 40 through 66. And what God is doing here is he's encouraging his distraught and suffering children to continue in the faith because despite all appearances, he was going to save them. And they needed to trust in him. And so God is speaking to his people as they are in Babylonian captivity, exiles, facing one of the darkest times they have ever faced in the existence of his people. And we're going through, you might say, some dark times today, but these were even darker. They were facing incredibly dark times. And God knows exactly what they need. God knew what they needed to hear. You know, in Isaiah 50, verse 4, if you remember, the servant had a timely word for those who were in need. He knew what he needed to give. And that's exactly the case with God. So what do God's people need to hear? They need to be encouraged to keep trusting in God. And so that's why God says, I am God. I alone am God. I am for you. I am going to deliver you. And I am with you. And I love you. Keep trusting in me. Don't turn away no matter how things appear and how difficult life gets. Do you ever, do we ever need anything like that today? Do we ever need to be encouraged to continue in the faith? Well, this is exactly what the church needs today. We are to encourage one another to continue to walk in the faith. And I have a question for you. I want you to think about this in light of your past week. Is this what you are doing? Are you devoted to encouraging the believers around you to continue in the faith? Because if you're not, then I have to ask you, what are you doing? What are you doing? This, of all times, is what we need to be doing right now with each other. We need to be, whenever we're with each other, whenever we're around each other, we need to be spurring, encouraging, reminding each other who God is, encouraging each other to hold fast to the word of God and the promises of God, to not give up hope. This is what we need to be doing as a church. And we should be able to look back on our past week and say, this is what I was doing this week. I was speaking into the lives of my brothers and sisters. I was encouraging them to remain steadfast in the faith. And I hope that's true of you. 
And I hope that this week it will be even more true of every one of us, including myself, that we continue encouraging one another to remain steadfast in the faith, as God is doing for his people throughout the Bible. Now in this passage, God is encouraging his people in a specific way. He is telling them exactly how he is going to save them. So God has encouraged them in various different ways. He often encourages them by saying, I can save you, I will save you, and this is why I will save you, right? He said that over and over and over again uh, in this section. I am the true God, I have all power, I will save you, I want to save you, and I will save you for my name's sake and for your good, right? We've seen that over and over again. But here, God explains really for the first time in, in, in quite this depth how he is going to save them. He's saying, I have said over and over again, I'm going to save you. I have told you I want to save you. And I have the power to save you. But now I am telling you, this is how I'm going to save you. So I just want you to see how this fits in to the encouraging word that God has given to his people. And it's kind of like this, maybe, sort of. Uh, if your doctor comes to you and says, you know, I can help you. I can save you. I know what to do. In fact, I really want to help you. I care about you. And then he goes on and says, this is exactly what I'm going to do. Right? It brings a little bit of encouragement, doesn't it? It helps us to know that he's in charge, that he's in control. It builds up our faith and strengthens our joy and gives us comfort. So how does God say that he's going to save his people? He says he's going to save them by dealing with their sin through becoming a sacrificial substitute for them. And we see this in the poem, the, the fourth servant song, especially in verses 4 through 6 and 10 through 12. So I'm just going to run through those verses and give you the main points that speak of how the servant is going to be a sacrificial substitute. Listen to these words. It's all over the place. This is clearly the heart of the message of what the servant is going to do here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And then finally, he shall bear their iniquities. And then actually, after that, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. And so as we look at this, we need to ask the question, why in the world of all the ways that God could do things, why in the world does God save this way? Have you ever asked this question? Why in the world is God saving this way? Because it, it is a bit perplexing, isn't it, when you look at this? And uh, it's kind of outside of our way of thinking. It didn't make any sense to anybody the way God was working. Why would God save this way? And we need to understand that every rebellious act that is really sin that you ever commit against God creates for you an infinite debt of injustice that must be paid for or satisfied if you are ever to be restored into favor 
and made right with God. Your rebellion and your sin creates this infinitely great debt, this eternal debt to God that must be paid for. A penalty must be paid for sin. Justice must be satisfied. And the Bible says this, and this is exactly what it's saying when it says this, the soul that sins is the soul that will die. The wages of sin is death. And this is not just physical death. This is eternal death. This is judgment. It's sometimes called the second death. And so you might look at this and think, well, what are the options? What are the options we have? Well, there are two options for how your sin might be dealt with. Either you will pay for your own sin debt for eternity in hell, or someone who is qualified as a substitute will pay for your sin debt in your place. Those are the only possible options. There are no other possibilities. Either you will pay for it for eternity because you've committed God-sized rebellion. I love saying this because I think it's so helpful to understand, and I've said it before, but the greatness of our sin is determined by the greatness of the one to whom it is committed. And that helps us to understand the greatness of the penalty that we owe. Either we pay for it for eternity or someone else is our substitute in our behalf. Few of us really take this into consideration, do we? We often don't consider this incredible reality that our sins must be paid for. Justice must be satisfied. But who in the world could possibly be qualified to take your place? Who would even want to take your place? Who would want to pay for your sins, even if they could pay for your sins? This is where the Old Testament is helpful, isn't it? It gives you a foundational understanding about how the substitutionary atonement, the sacrifice of God, must be worked out. It shows us how it functions. And we see this in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers. And you might have read those Old Testament passages and wondered, what in the world is this all about, right? What in the world is all of these sacrifices and how they're prescribed to work out? It just seems so long and it seems to go on forever. I'm actually in Leviticus right now in my own Bible reading. And uh, it's really fascinating to look at it in light of what we're preaching on and, and, and talking about right here. It's all incredibly significant for us to understand what God requires and what is owed to God because of our sin. Well, God required that they bring an animal, such as a sheep, to be slaughtered as a sacrifice for their sins. And there were all these strange qualifications, weren't there? And we can't go through them all, but they had to be spotless, had to, be had to have the shedding of blood, had to be the firstborn. And so there were all these regulations that showed us what is required of God, what is required of this substitute if our sins are ever to be paid for and ever to be covered by someone else. And this passage tells us, praise be.
be to God, that the servant is qualified to be our substitute. And that is an incredible thought. Just think about the ramifications of that. Think about the greatness of that. He is not only qualified to be our substitute, but he is the only qualified substitute for your sin. The sacrificial sheep could only represent as a picture what we needed as a substitute. They could never be a substitute in themselves. No one or nothing on earth could ever substitute for your sin. We needed someone who was a representative, representative of us. We needed a human like us. And notice in 53 verse 2, it says, The servant grew up like a plant, like a, a little twig. But the point is there, he grew up. He grew up. He took on flesh. But we also needed someone who was bigger than us, who was able to save us. Notice the servant described in chapter 52, verse 13. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Those are words that are reserved for God himself. And it's three times, as we said last week, emphasizing he shall be high, he shall be lifted up, he shall be exalted. It's saying that he is to be in the position of God because he is God. And those words are only used of God in Isaiah. So he is man and he is God. In fact, in John 8, verse 28, Jesus said these incredible words. He said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that can easily slip by our radars when you read that. I am he is a reference to God. That's what he's saying. When I am sacrificed, when I am exalted on that cross and, and resurrected, then you will know that I am He. I am God. So He is qualified to save because He is both one of us and He is God with us. He can identify with us and He can save us. Incredible. So we are told the greatest news in all the world right here in these verses. The servant is not just qualified to save, but has come to be the sacrificial substitute for his people in order to bring restoration and salvation to those who are far away and separated from God himself. He is exactly the Savior you need. If you miss the servant, you have no hope of escaping the judgment of God. Think about that. For you and I today, we have the sweetest wor words in all the world that we get to hear. There are no greater words that have ever reached the ears of mankind than the message of God's salvation. How gracious of our God to speak these words to us today. Who are you and who am I that God should give us this message and God should give us this news and such a great salvation. Ponder the thought that God has revealed to you the great saving words that he has sent his son on your behalf. So I said that these are encouraging words. That the words that God gives to us about how he's going to save us are supposed to be encouraging to us. So I want us to understand how these should be encouraging to us 
today by looking at the entirety of the message and pulling out a few points from the servant song. So it is encouraging to understand what God has saved you from. If you want to understand what you deserve for your sin, you need to look at what the substitute did for you, right? The best way to understand what you deserved is to look at what the servant did, if he is your substitute, because what he did is what you deserved. What he took on your behalf is what you deserved to take. I will simply repeat the description of what the servant experienced to help us understand what he saved you from and what you deserved. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement with the wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. His soul makes an offering for guilt. You know, all of this suffering here, we can hear all these words and we can really miss it if we're not careful. You see, all of this suffering is based on or comes from or is intended to picture for us the one aspect of his suffering that was immeasurably worse than all others. What was the one aspect of the suffering that Jesus experienced that was worse than all others? That is the foundation of all that he suffered. That all of this is picturing for us that made Jesus cringe and shrink. Well, he didn't shrink away, but want to shrink away. The one thing that Jesus recoiled from the most is described as the cup. It was not the whipping or the thorns, but the cup. And what does the cup represent? When Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, Notice that was the one thing he, he, he begged the Father. Let this cup pass from me. What was the cup? What was he talking about? Well, the cup was the wrath of God. The cup was the rejection of the Father. The cup was the turning of the back of the Father to the Son. The cup, strangely enough, is the crushing and the putting him to grief. He drank to the dregs the fullness of the cup of God's wrath so that we would not have to drink it. This is what really makes our sin so terrible. A holy God cannot look at you if you have sin on your account. He cannot look at you with favor. And is there anything worse than the Father's rejection? Is it really bad to be outside of the favor of God? How bad does that compare to having the Babylonians angry at you and coming after you? How bad does that compare to getting coronavirus or even cancer or losing all of your retirement money? What's worse? 
Well, there is nothing worse, nothing that compares to being at odds with the living God. This is not only the greatest problem in the world, it is truly the only problem in the world. Whatever problems you think you have, they are nothing in comparison to this problem. And this is what you and I need to be saved from. This is a big deal. This is a big problem. Until you begin to recognize this as being your greatest problem and the greatness of it, the cross will never look significant to you. It will never be important. You will never recognize the arm of the Lord as being of any significance to you. It will never save you, and it will never be of any saving significance to you until you begin to see the greatness of your problem. How could it ever look necessary if you don't need it? The cross might look like a nice symbol or even a great example of love, but it will never look savingly great until you realize the reality of your sins before a holy and righteous God. But for those of us who recognize their problem and have run to Christ for safety, there is nothing, there is nothing more encouraging than to know what God has saved you from. God turned his back on his son that he might turn his face favorably towards you forever. What a great Savior we have. Second, it is encouraging to see the perfectly sufficient nature of the sacrifice and to hear the subsequent confirmation of its effectiveness. The servant's words and actions show us that he was qualified to be our sacrifice. In verse 7 and 9, we see this. I will read just verse 7. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. What made him qualified? Well, he was qualified to be our substitute because he was innocent in word and in deed. He truly was a spotless lamb of God without any fault. You see, to say that he was without violence and innocent with words, without deceit with his words, means that he was as innocent as you could be, that he was different than any one of us, that he was the only innocent one, and therefore the only one who could truly become a sacrifice for us. He was by nature different than anyone who had ever gone before him or would ever come after him. And this cannot be said of anyone else. Not only that, but the Father's actions towards the servant also show that he was qualified to be our sacrifice. Listen to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for a guilt. How do the Father's actions show that Jesus was qualified to be our sacrifice? Well, you remember Abraham and Isaac when he went to sacrifice his own son? Well, his own son would not have qualified as a sacrifice, right? And he was stopped from sacrificing his own son. But here it is the will of the Lord. It pleased the Lord to crush his son. And what does that mean? Well, in words of the Old Testament sacrifice, it was pleasing to the Lord. This sacrifice was pleasing to God. It was acceptable 
It was the perfect sacrifice that brought a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This was pleasing to him. He was qualified. This is saying that the servant was qualified to be our sacrifice. And he was accepted. He was the only one who could have been accepted for our sins. And then we see that the reward the servant receives for successful work also confirms that he was qualified. And so be encouraged by the reward. And notice that it's just built up one after another after another comments that just say the same thing over and over again in verses 10 through 12, telling us that his sacrifice was acceptable, that he had accomplished everything he came to do. You see, the servant who died will not only be rewarded with offspring, but will see his offspring. It says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. You see, his death qualifies him for the reward of offspring. And on top of that, he will see his offspring. And that cannot happen, of course, unless he is risen from the dead. Unless he is alive. He who died is now alive. Every believer here in this room are his offspring. The servant who died will also be rewarded with infinitely prolonged days. And it says here, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Not only is he alive, but he is thriving. Long life is seen as a blessing from the Lord. And although the word resurrection is not mentioned here, it is all over the place. This is all over the place. The one who died is now alive. He has been raised to indestructible life. We also see that the servant who died will be satisfied with the reward of his work. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In other words, he shall say, it was worth it. It was worth it. And But then you wonder, what will he be satisfied with? And it says here that he'll be satisfied with the many righteous children that shall come as his offspring. It says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, what it's saying here is incredible. Not only will he remove our sins from us, but notice he is going to put his righteousness on our account as if it was our righteousness that we committed. What an incredible thought that the righteousness of God is imparted to our account. He clothes us in an alien righteousness that comes from outside of us. And this is the reward for the suffering servant that he receives. Many righteous offspring. And you and I are these offspring, <laughs> these righteous offspring that the servant receives if you are trusting and believing in him. The servant who died shall also receive the reward of his victorious work and share it with others. Look at verse 12. Therefore I'll divide him a portion with many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And here he is pictured as a conquering hero, receiving the spoil and sharing it with others. We are his offspring. We are the righteous satisfaction. We are the spoil that the servant has won. So be encouraged by the effectiveness of the servant's work. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Colossians 2 verse 10. Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God, 
righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 through 31. It is finished. There is nothing missing from the servant's work. Thirdly, it is encouraging to see exemplified in the servant the ultimate pattern of the life of faith. He models the path of sacrificial servanthood that leads to glory. Now I want to make it very clear that what the servant did is infinitely greater than just an example. (laughs) He is much more than just an example, and we never want to in any way um, portray what he did as being ultimately an example. But it's not less than the greatest example of all either, right? And we are absolutely justified in thinking of him as the greatest example because the, Old, the New Testament tells us that we should think of it that way. In 1 Peter 2, verse 22 through 25, Peter quotes from this passage telling us that we are to see the servant's example as a model for us and how we should live. Listen to these words. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Peter is telling us how we should respond to unjust treatment in our lives. How do you respond when you are treated unjustly as a servant of God? And you will be treated that way. Well, Jesus is our ultimate example. When you suffer injustice as Jesus did, you are to follow his example that he set for us. And he has enabled you to follow his example. You should not sin or practice deceit in response to mistreatment. You are not to bring vindication to yourself. You're not to threaten. You're not to retaliate. You are rather to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. And so you wonder, how in the world could I ever do this? How can anyone do this? Well, that's a a great question. How can I not demand justice and bring it myself? Well, there's only one way. You must be confident that God will bring vindication. We don't demand it because God will bring justice in his time. He will do better than any of us could ever do. He will vindicate you and judge your enemies if they refuse to repent. Now, what's really important is we don't refuse justice here. We're not saying that we just ignore injustice. We're not saying we pass it by and, uh, and pretend it didn't happen. God himself cannot do that. What this is, means is that we live by faith. Rather, we leave it in God's hands, knowing that he will do it better than anyone else could ever do. God will never let any injustice ever slip through the cracks. He will always deal with it. And he will do it better than any of us can do. If we don't get it on earth, we leave it to God and believe that he will take care of it. And we expect it and we long for it. We long for justice. So Jesus gives us a new pattern for living through his example. He shows us the upside-down kingdom and how it works. How victory comes through service, humility, and submissive obedience. The path might look fruitless and vain as it did for the servant. It might be costly 
and require great sacrifice. It will be costly and require great sacrifice. You might grieve and weep along the way as a servant did, but this, this path is the path of glory, and it's the path the servant took. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to follow Jesus in doing God's will. Jesus says this, said this, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit his soul? Whoever comes after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And let us not think for a second that following the path that Jesus took is the root or the foundation of our glorious salvation, because it's not. It is rather the fruit. It is how we identify ourselves as new creatures. Through suffering and endurance for his namesake, we identify ourselves as being God's children, as being his new creation, as being part of God's kingdom. It is only when we faithfully endure suffering that we truly confess that we are God's children. And that is why God, one of the reasons why God wanted Job to suffer, so that he would confess the genuineness of his faith. So from the very beginning, after the fall, God has been promising to deliver his people over and over and over again. God has been saying, I will deliver you. I will deliver you. I want to deliver you. I am powerful enough to deliver you. I love you for my glory and for your good. And throughout the Old Testament, we see shadows and pictures and people representing the ultimate deliverer, showing us how God is going to save. And those who have faith have always been longing for the victory that God would bring. Those who have faith have been waiting and waiting and waiting for God to deliver them. And sometimes we can get confused and forget what the real problem is, can't we? We can think that the problem is that we need to get a new house, or we need a new car, or we need freedom from Babylon, right? We think that these things are victory every once in a while. We need to be reminded that these things are not victory. These things are not our salvation. Be encouraged in this dark world that God has brought the victory, that God has brought salvation through his servant. Here is God's provision. Here is how you and I are restored into fellowship with God. For you who are in Christ Jesus, who have believed, who have trusted in Jesus, who have repented of your sin and bowed before the living God, you who, who, who are children of God at this moment, you are right with the living God. You are under God's favor. He is for you, and he could not be more for you than he is right now. No matter what happens in your life, you are victorious. You might suffer more than others do, but you are victorious in the suffering and will be victorious through the suffering in Christ. The question I have for you is this. Do you see the arm of the Lord? Have you believed the message? Has the arm of the Lord been revealed to you? Do you see glory in the arm of the Lord? How about your neighbors? How about your family? How about your friends? This is the only hope of salvation. There is no other hope available. As ambassadors for God, we implore you, be reconciled to God.
Romans 5 verse 19 says this, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Look to the Savior and live. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we are thankful. We are thankful beyond words, God. Words cannot express how thankful we are today for bringing to us such a great salvation. Lord, you have spared no expense. You have ascended, descended (laughs) from the throne of God. You have taken on flesh. You have lived the perfect life. You are the innocent lamb who was slain in our behalf. You bore the weight of our sin so that we would not have to, have to bear the crushing weight of our own sin. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being such a great Savior. Thank you for caring for us, for loving us, for saving us, for delivering us from eternal judgment that we deserved. Lord, if there are any in here who are not saved, God, if there are any in here who are outside of your favor, who are facing the judgment of God, and rightfully so, I pray, Lord, that you would call them to yourself. I pray that they would hear your voice today. That you would deliver them from their terrible condition. And that they would be saved. Lord, may they bow to you and repent and cry out to you to save them from their sins. Lord, I thank you, God. I thank you, Lord, that today is the day of salvation. And Lord, I pray that we would not let it pass without knowing that we are right with the living God. And Lord, I pray that today that we would find great encouragement, great encouragement in the salvation that you have brought for us. It is sufficient. You have delivered us from our sins, and it is everything we will ever need. Lord, you are everything we will ever need. In Jesus' name.